0: Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence with me, Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor.
1: And me, Duncan Jarvis, I'm Multimedia Editor at the BMJ. Now this week, we are doing things slightly differently. We've got two um, interviews for you. First is on vaccines. Uh, And I'm really glad you did this, Helen, because I've been wondering, I'm not in phase one of the vaccine and when I'll be getting that. So uh, if you're like me, stay tuned and listen to that. We'll also be hearing uh, from Gordon Guyot, who is one of those, uh, I almost said behemoths, but um, grandfathers (laughs) of uh, evidence-based medicine, talking about GRADE, which I have seen all over our site, but I've never actually had explained to me.
0: Well, we shall demystify it all, starting now. So, Dunks, I think we should get to the vaccines first, because I think that's quite honestly the thing that's interesting you at the moment. Your self-interest in when you're (laughs) going to get your jab. This is
1: all about self-interest
0: on this podcast. (laughs) And I did promise to track down someone from the UK Vaccine Committee, and I talked with Anthony Harden. And I'm going to take a big breath here to introduce him. I was trying to work out which of his roles were relevant to mention. I realised quite a lot of them were, (laughs) so here I go. He is deputy chair of the joint committee on vaccines and Immunisations in the uk he's a professor of primary care he's a practicing gp in oxford sheer and he is an education series advisor for the bmj which i kind of mentioned not because it's his most influential role but because it's kind of a declaration of interest that we sort of know him he's yes. a friend of the journal um and we know that vaccines are very central to covid recovery globally um And we wanted to come back to this topic, aside from your self-interest, Duncan, because we've talked about uh, on the show back in the summer, how good would a vaccine have to be to be worth it? We talked about vaccines again. We started to see these promising numbers come out of those big um, trials. And now we've really got the focus shifting on which one to pick and how to roll it out and what do we do next? And I could have talked to Anthony probably for about two hours, but... um, (laughs) You might have all stopped listening. <laughs> so I focused on three areas. Um, and uh, if you think I missed something important, maybe you can send us your questions because I did I did get Anthony to promise that he might come back on the show again. Um, so I talked to him a bit about the basics of how the committee works, what evidence they see, where it comes from, how they use it, how they request it, and finally, about transparency of the evidence both that they're using, but also of how the committee functions. Mm.
1: Well, let's listen to that interview now,
0: Anthony. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to us. You must be just tremendously busy at the moment.
2: Yes, I mean it's it's probably the busiest time of my professional career, and but enormous privilege to be involved in both the uh, vaccine strategy at a national level and the vaccine delivery at a local level so yes it's been it's been it's been an interesting few months but um, one which I'm both enjoying and, um, and and determined to make the vaccine program nationally work as well as mm-hmm. it working locally so great great privilege and great
0: and great fortune to be involved in sort of one aspect of Covid which seems so positive that that a lot of hopes are riding on um, which I guess is both both a kind of um, a good thing and a bad thing because you're you're you've got to look at this objectively and critically and everything else. Just I think listeners would not forgive me if we didn't pause just for a second to say what is the latest. Do you want to give us a kind of a two minutes on uh, on on where you're at with the vaccines?
2: Yes, you know, Helen, I think this is one thing that the UK government have got absolutely spot on, um, and the vaccine program nationally has been an enormous success. We've immunised more than 21 million people with their first dose of vaccine to date Um, and um, we have very high levels of acceptance of the vaccine in the older populations so it's all going really well.
0: Do you want to touch on phase two?
2: Yeah um, phase one uh, I'll just recap includes all those uh, in priority groups one and nine, that's all those over the age of 50, or all those adults between 18 and 64 with an underlying health condition. Um, and that encompassed about 90 in wave one, about 99% of all hospitalizations and deaths. Well, that includes 32 million adult people. Uh, wave two is about the remaining 21 million adults in the country. Um and we decided uh, after a very careful examination of the data that the key uh, risk factor was age, um, and it remains the predominant risk factor even in those younger age cohorts. Uh, so, for example, those aged between forty and forty nine probably have about ten times the risk of severe illness than those younger. Uh, and so we thought the way that this programme was working the best was to keep it fast, to keep it simple and to keep it prioritised according to age. And therefore, we've come up with three age bands in phase two, which are 40 to 49, 30 to 39 and 18 to 29. And this will keep it fast and simple. There are about seven million remaining after health conditions have been taken out in those each of those age bands. And um, at the rate that we're vaccinating at the moment, it really should be only two to three weeks to get through each age band in turn. So we think that's the best best strategy and the best um, way of delivering this programme fast and to the majority.
0: What were the kind of alternatives that you that you looked at and, and dismissed as perhaps less, less efficient?
2: Well, we looked at the occupational exposure risk. Um, as you probably heard, there's been an awful lot of... Um, Uh, pressure really from various different sectors such as teachers and police and other sectors Uh, but the occupational exposure data was patchy um, although the data did seem to suggest that if you were to pick out occupational groups it would be those that were working in closed and unventilated environments such as processing factories or those that were hugely exposure risks such as those that are working within the uh, transport sector or um, in the catering industry. Um, But the data wasn't very, very firm on any of these groups. It was quite clear when we looked at teachers in particular that they had no uh, greater exposure risk or greater risk of infection or severe illness than anybody else for their age in the population. Uh, And so we felt, given that uh, the data was patchy, uh, and also that um occupational group was not clearly recorded in the mm. main NGp records that the simplest way of doing this would be to stick to an age band and of course all teachers all police within the um who have an underlying illness or over the age of 40 will be immunized within that first um first um, priority group within phase two so we think this is a fair and and reasonable strategy
0: well that is a very good update now the things I really wanted to ask you about today is um what goes on behind the scenes because we obviously hear through the news um the the major pronouncements that are made but I think something that clinical listeners in particular and those um waiting or have had their vaccine would be interested just to kind of I guess take the lid off what goes on in the vaccine committee and tell us a bit about it so for people who perhaps don't understand um, how the vaccine committee usually works or how it's been working now can you just give us a bit of a flavour of who's on the vaccine committee how it functions who tells you what to do who do you have to share your information with? Who do you have to work with? What's the day-to-day like?
2: Uh, lots of questions there. I mean, it's very interesting that the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation had been so little heard of until recently where now everybody <laughs> knows about it. Um, important to say to the start that it's a statutory but independent advisory body. Um, we uh, provide advice to... Um, the Department of Health and and Social Care and Ministers who actually make the final policy decisions. Uh, um, We have a wide range of representation on the JCVI. It's a committee of about 14 individuals and includes expertise from um, vaccinology, epidemiology, uh, respiratory medicine, public health, community paediatrics, we have mathematical modeler, we have a health economist, um, we have an immunologist, we have a virologist, um, we have a lay representative. So all the disciplines, uh, including myself as the primary care representative, and in fact a nurse representative as well, are, are included within the committee. Uh, the committee um, in my Tenure met about three times a year with various different subcommittee meetings, um, and um, but and and you know we've advised during my tenure on programs such as HPV, rotavirus, shingles, maternal pertussis, uh, meningococcal B, more recently, and most of these discussions have been based around a cost-effective analysis of um, of putting various vaccines into the schedule and whether they were cost effective or not. But of course, the COVID has completely blown this all out of the water because we've done no cost effective analysis for COVID. It's just been seen as an absolute imperative. Um, And the COVID vaccine subcommittee, which is what it is, has been set up and has been meeting weekly and sometimes twice weekly since May of this year. Um, to because of the the clear imperative and sensitivities around the decision and the acceleration of vaccines and the number of different types of vaccines and the, the, the volumes of information that have been coming into the committee. They come into the committee via the secretariat, um, uh, which is quite a small secretariat consisting of three or four individuals, um, and the secretariat is based within Public Health England.
0: On this show, Anthony, we uh, love evidence and data. So, just give us a flavour of uh, where the data come from.
2: So, we 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 get data from a number of different sources. We get observational data from primary care and secondary care sources. We get we're privy to looking at. Um, Uh, pharmaceutical uh, clinical trial data, often many of which is not in the public domain at the the time that we're looking at it. Uh, We look at regulators' uh, data, we look at surveillance data, we look at coverage data, um, we see volumes and volumes of data um, and presentations and and then we construct uh, policy advice decisions based on that data.
0: And to what extent are you able to shape that data? Are you able to say, as the committee, we'd like to see X, Y and Z? Or does does the secretariat just kind of send you the bundle and say, there you go, guys, that's that's your lot? <laughs> no, um, I,
2: I, we, we are. Uh, Helen, it's a really interesting question, probably best illustrated by the data that we're requesting at the moment. So, so um, we are able to request data and we are able to uh, shape what... Um, go back to uh, uh, different research groups or people that provide data and say say that we want this or that. Um, So, for instance, for example, now we know that we need data on the uh, new vaccines against variants. We need data on interchangeability of vaccine type. We're very interested to see whether, for instance, if you're given one vaccine uh, as a first dose, whether you get a better longer term protection if you get a different vaccine as a second dose. We're interested in looking at data on children. We look, we want evidence of vaccines against uh, effectivity, against transmission. We're requesting data and we're particularly interested in data on the duration of protection from mm. the vaccine. So uh, these are just some examples that are current that we're actually openly requesting data on. We look at for instance, we've gone back to the safely group recently and asked them to unpick data on learning disabilities, and unpick data on asthma, and, and the risk for that. Um, so we're constantly going back to data sources and asking them for more data.
0: What What are the biggest challenges with the data? I mean, obviously, you started with this very optimistic. Um, encouraging trial data and I guess that must have been what kind of launched the the profile of the vaccines and how important they were going to be to the opening up and and recovery from COVID but now you must be starting with these new data channels that that you were suggesting and into digging into observational data and and real world data what what are the difficulties for you there?
2: Well as a as an evidence-based um uh Organization, which the BMJ is, you you fully understand the difficulties with uh, observational evidence as opposed to clinical trial evidence, and and the key thing about observational evidence is 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 confounding really, and and, and the various confounding variables which are often both known and unknown within those data sets. Um, so we're very conscious that as we go out and look at real world data, that it's not as perfect as. Uh, as clinical trial data um, and then then, of course, the other thing is it's, it 's they're big and dirty data sets and and um, but but they are what we have and and mm. and you know it 's all very well thinking of efficacy of vaccines through clinical trials, but what we want to know about is about the real world effectiveness in a population which we 're rolling out to, and so we look at various different studies i mean there 's been studies that are done by public health England. Um, there's Public Health Scotland data that's come up look, looking at real world effectiveness recently, um, showing the the significant effect reduction in hospitalisations um, in the elderly population with both vaccines. Um, there are university data sets coming out. There's a lot of work coming out of the University of Bristol. So we, we try and gather all these data sets, but, but they are difficult and they're often not comparable populations. Um, yeah, so that's difficult, um, and 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 always needs to be bared in mind what what's what is the the pop the representative population that those studies are being conducted in, um, and how representative is that of the of the whole population? Mm-hmm. Which is why, in many ways, the de- the data from Public Health Scotland, which was looking at the whole of Scotland, was quite interesting. Um, yeah yeah. I mean there, there are problems looking at all these data sets but but um, but they're important and 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 we we look at them but understand all the caveats that are behind them
0: I had a question as well Anthony around the kind of methodology of how um, the committee uses the evidence so if for example I read um, the nice guidance they have a particular way of laying um, things out or you could use grade methodology and they have a particular things of way of laying out their sort of decision making is there a is there a kind of particular method that the that you use or is it more more of an iterative approach what's the well I
2: I, I, I don't think we're as formulaic as some of the nice and we did look at the way that we may um, look at evidence and grade evidence um, and we did look at the grade system um, a number of years ago actually as a potential methodology as well as a structure about how we would um, how we would examine cost effectiveness data and looked at various various frameworks for doing that um, they 're all very good, but the fact that we get so much of a wide Variety of evidence in 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 different formats that we didn't really feel that actually uh, sticking rigidly within that would be helpful in terms of making vaccine policy advice decisions. So we're aware of the, that type of evidence and uh, framework, evidence frameworks, and we're aware of the importance of being very careful about how we examine evidence, but we don't, on the whole, stick within those sort of frameworks because we just would find that would constrain us too much in our decision-making process. And and the thing that we've had to do with these COVID vaccines is act very quickly, with quite a lot of evidence coming in from various different sources, but, but acting quickly and nimbly to be able to give ministers those... Uh, advice in a very timely manner. And I think constraining ourselves within frameworks can be helpful, but can be hindering. And we haven't gone along that route.
0: Can we touch a little bit on, um, I suppose, a mixture, I guess, of of transparency and sort of communication? Because vaccines is one of those areas internationally where hesitancy is recognised as a problem. um, And there's a there's a kind of perhaps an increased um, need to build trust. I guess if you are advising um, on meningitis B or one of these discrete decisions that you've made before, it's quite easy to kind of put your thinking out in one document and, it, and it's kind of clear for people. How how do you think things could work um, in terms of narrating the story of what you're what you're doing now
2: well i think it's important to realize that the um are the minutes of every single meeting that we have are in the public domain um i mean it's very difficult for the secretariat which is a very small secretariat to be publishing them in a completely timely manner um and so sometimes they they get published a few weeks after the meetings but 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 they're doing a good job and and um and they're published widely um Mm -hmm. uh, I've done an awful lot myself. A number of other committee members have it communicating uh, our message and our thinking to the public <laughs> in terms of vaccine confidence through various media and other channels. Um, I mean, there's always more that can be done, but we are we are a relatively transparent committee. We don't um, we don't hide things. Um, we we do see a lot of sensitive commercial data, which is tricky, um, and we are under some non disclosure agreements for some of that data. But but the understanding is that data will be published at the time that the pharmaceutical companies wish to publish it. So I don't I don't think the secrecy of data is the thing that's holding back vaccine confidence I think it's mainly misinformation through social media channels and and other means that are really promoting vaccine damaging vaccine confidence and that's what we need to work as a scientific community as an advisory body as a government in any other way that we can do to try and combat this misinformation
0: Mm. so final question Anthony, you talked a bit about where we were with the with the phase 2 rollout but i think the question which is on a lot of primary care doctors minds at the moment is you're racing through this huge population to get them vaccinated um are they going to have to do it all again in september with the same vaccine with a with a different vaccine um what what's the what's the current uh, group thinking on that with your colleagues
2: well certainly my personal view is that we are going to need a booster vaccine in the autumn. Um, And there are a number of reasons for that. One is that um, there are going to be new variants circulating. Without any doubt, this virus is mutating. And we're going to have to look very carefully at giving a booster vaccine to prevent the variant which is circulating at the time. The other thing is that we know that we don't know how long the duration of protection is going to last and we certainly don't want to see a winter like we've seen this winter um, and if we've got new variants circulating and we've got dropping off levels of immunity due to the vaccination then that becomes an imperative to do a booster. Think, the interesting thing about booster vaccines is that there are four, essentially four different vaccine types which are Available at the moment, there's the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, uh, the Moderna vaccine. There, there are uh, viral vector platform vaccines, like we know the Oxford AstraZ- AstraZeneca vaccine, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, some of the Russian and, and Chinese vaccines are of viral vector vaccines. But there's also um, uh, protein subunit vaccines, the Novavax vaccine, and there's whole-cell-inactivated virus vaccines like the Valneva vaccine. And it may be that some of these other vaccine types offer a broader protection against elements of the virus other than the spike protein. We mm. know it's the spike protein that mutates, and so we may get CBC and vaccine escape against certain types of the spike protein vaccine. So we'll either need edited vaccines of the vaccines against the spike protein or will be needing um, more broader vaccines like the protein subunit or the whole cell in- inactivated vaccines um, to protect against, uh, give a wider protection. So I think it's inevitable that we're gonna need to have a second, uh, a booster dose. Perhaps in the, in the older population, the more vulnerable population groups, um, And that may be that may be groups one to nine, it may be groups one to four, or it may be the whole population. That I don't really know yet, but I think there Mm. will be a booster vaccine and it will be a a, either a broader spectrum vaccine or a tweaked or edited uh, vaccine type that we've got at the moment.
0: Mm. And how do you think we'll resolve that? Because that there is a lot of uncertainty is it you think that this is outlying a kind of from an evidence perspective a need for continued trials to in real time pick up some of these some of these issues you know as we come out of our uh, winter and go into the summer whether you know down in Australia or on the other side of the world where they're going to be heading in their winter do we need to be kind of doing some studies there so that so that then you know i suppose passing it between the northern and southern hemisphere to generate that evidence that then helps the next location in the next season i
2: think all those things you say will be helpful but ultimately i think that we will be looking at the emergence of variants we'll be looking at duration of protection and we'll be very very conscious that we just can't take the risk of another winter like we've had and I think if there's any any chance of that that we will want a booster immunization we we just need to make sure that um that it's that it's effective um but I just don't I, you know one of the reasons Helen that we've been so so successful is that we've made bold and quick decisions, you know the really bold decision to immunise more people with that first dose. The bold decision to use the AstraZeneca vaccine when there was evidence, but minimal evidence in the older population. And I think we're likely to make a bold decision to recommend a booster dose, even if we haven't got all the evidence of the necessity, just because I think the consequences of not immunising with a booster dose are just so big if it, if it, if it if it's proved that it's needed proved it's an interesting word that it's needed months later, it may be too late um and I think that we know from other vaccine schedules and we know from the influenza vaccine that it's likely that booster doses are going to be really effective, so I think we'll we'll muster up as much. Data and as much evidence as we possibly mm. can, but it's my personal view that we're likely to go on, the, on that route,
0: and you think that'll be a booster sort of this year and then c or or sort of a bit like influenza ad infinitum, you've got a kind of annual coronavirus um yeah, I think
2: it's i think vaccine. I think it's likely it's going to be annual, but I think it will almost certainly happen this year, and I think it will happen sooner this year. We're talking about August, September this year rather than later in the year because uh, of this worry about a third, large third wave affecting the vulnerable elderly. But yes, I think looking forward to the future, I don't know, but I suspect it's going to be likely that we're going to require an annual booster for for a while. It just depends on the the length of duration of protection. And, you know, the, the virus mutates probably doesn't mutate as much and as quickly as the influenza virus so very difficult to predict whether this is going to be an annual for and for how many years but I certainly think it's going to be a booster shot this year
0: that seems like a good place to stop um so I will say Anthony thank you so much for taking the time to join us and um I hope that we can invite you back um over the coming months to uh, give us an update on on the work of the committee.
2: It's been a real pleasure. And of course, I'd be very happy to talk to you at any future stage.
1: So well done. First question got, uh, got what I needed to know out of that. Thank you, Helen.
0: There are so many points we could pick up there to talk about more, Duncan, but I think we should focus on the evidence. Mm. Um, and initially we did talk about that sort of high quality trial evidence that was going to come about whether the vaccines were worth it at all but Anthony also pointed to some really fundamental and key uncertainties um, some of which might be addressed by ongoing trials for example the duration of protection um, or by new trials being set up um, such as the ones looking at whether um, if you have one vaccine and then a different um, type of vaccine or brand of vaccine uh, what's the difference but they Do you seem like some messier evidence areas um, where tougher decisions are going to have to be made? And I'm less aware of trials going on um, in that space, um, particularly around the evidence for vaccinating children, around transmission, um, how the vaccines might perform on the new variants. And this um, really interesting bit that Anthony was talking about, about the booster dosing, about the frequency, the type, the brands of vaccines.
1: Yeah, and why they why the specific ones looking at spike proteins um might not have uh, such good protection against uh, mutations i that knew that re-
0: would set off your basic science yeah, brain. yeah
1: no that, that was really interesting i was like oh that makes sense okay thanks for that um but <laughs> you know it, it's interesting then that mixing and matching like that could could be a actually a useful thing it could be a helpful um thing to sort of increase your your resistance base as it were um and just today, in the in the uh, journal, we were talking about all the different new vaccines that's on, coming on on board. Because obviously, here we're talking about AstraZeneca and and Pfizer, because that's what we're using in the in the UK. But there's this new Sputnik one from Russia and a new Chinese one, and again with loads of details, loads of evidence missing. So uh, that's a lot of work for them to do in the next uh, next few months. I bet. So, Helen, it's always nice to hear um, from intelligent people talk about intelligent things on this. and <laughs> I think that's what Gordon is going to do. But uh, why specifically did you want to get him on the podcast and, and talk about GRADE?
0: Well, there are a few reasons. One is that, obviously, on this show we love evidence and there are, there are several core EBM centres internationally and I would say McMaster, where, where Gordon works, is one of those centers and internationally he is one of those figures so i've been waiting for an excuse <laughs> to talk to him for for ages um and there've also been some some other little bits and pieces in the back of my mind one is this kind of slight irking i feel when i read headlines I don't come around that often but reading about discrepancies between guidance sort of saying well one country recommended this and this one's recommended that and almost setting that up as if somebody's wrong and mm. of, of course someone might be wrong someone might have done a very bad job but also um could it not be just that we see things differently that it's okay actually to come to a different opinion based on looking at the the same um evidence the other thing then was obviously more immediate I just interviewed Anthony this week and listening to how they had thought through their evidence and how they had found um a a freer approach and and the um constraints of a decision framework difficult within their line of work I was interested to hear from someone that felt totally differently because Gordon is Mr Grade and Mr Grade gives you um you know a system a framework for thinking about things and um Finally, if you are a seriously avid reader of not just BMJ but BMJ.com specifically, (laughs) you may have seen that there is um, a little correspondence about guidelines on... um, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, which have come out from NICE in the UK, focusing around rehabilitation interventions. And this has a loose tie back to COVID because we know that there are clinics being set up for long COVID and that some of those are drawing on principles of rehabilitation. I could just see, Gordon was in this little correspondence and I could just see everyone feeling a bit angsty. um, And I thought this would be a good time to sort of stand back and talk to him about guidelines and, and GRADE. And we should should listen to him. Yeah, find out
1: about his (laughs) point of view in this. So I'm now going to do the same as you did earlier. Take a deep breath and try and introduce him. So this is Gordon Guyatt, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Health, Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster
3: University. Initially in evidence-based medicine, the focus was on teaching clinicians how to read the original literature and make their own decisions. Um, it took us a few years to realize that very few clinicians are going to be in a position to make their own decisions, read methods and results, and so on, and that the uh, more useful strategy was to have excellent evidence based guidelines which clinicians can understand the evidence summaries from, and they understand the guidelines. At the time we did this, at the time the change in focus occurred, there were dozens of systems for rating the quality of evidence and strength of recommendations, and this was terribly confusing. M- many of them were poorly thought out, even the ones that were a little bo- well better thought out were not optimal and just the profusion was a total problem. So, uh, under the initial leadership of Andy Oxman, whose idea it was, um, a number of us got together and said, can we come up with an optimal system of rating the quality of the evidence and the strength of recommendations uh, in the context of clinical practice guidelines?
0: And you mentioned several words, which if you read grade um, methodology or you read papers that have been um, processed using grades, that you see quite a lot quality, certainty, trustworthiness. Just tell us what they really mean.
3: Okay, so um, the um, you can think of evidence. Somebody makes a statement that this treatment reduces mortality. One can imagine a situation in which you read the evidence, makes you quite sure that the treatment reduces mortality. One might call that high-quality evidence. Unfortunately, in the Clinepi word, quality has often meant just risk of bias. But there are other elements. So we started out with quality, but that was confusing to some people. And then we said this trustworthiness um, saying, okay, I can really believe that this treatment uh, lowers mortality. We've really got strong evidence to support it. Um, we, instead of calling it quality, let's call it confidence in the evidence. Mm-hmm. And then somebody said, but that'll confuse people with confidence intervals. And then we said, well, what about certainty of evidence? Well, that's a reasonable alternative as well. So mostly, we've come down to using quality or certainty. But the issue is, somebody says, mortality, this treatment lowers mortality. At the one extreme, we're pretty confident, maybe even highly confident that it lowers mortality, and we call it high-quality evidence, high-certainty evidence. Or, as a matter of fact, the evidence leaves us terribly uncertain there's something there, but we're still really terribly uncertain whether it lowers mortality or not, and that is low quality, low certainty, low confidence evidence. And of course, I've presented the two extremes, but you can be anywhere in between. You can have intermediate levels of confidence or quality or certainty.
0: Absolutely. And what are the elements or the ingredients that you're looking at to make that judgment?
3: So, Uh, One thing is study design, and the core of study design is whether it's randomized trials or observational studies, and historically, um, EBM said randomized trials are much more trustworthy in general than observational studies, and that remains true. So in the grade system where we have high, moderate, low, and very low quality or certainty of evidence, randomized trials start high and observational studies start low. However, grade has become much more sophisticated, and we have five categories of reasons why, high, why randomized trials, a group of, a body of randomized trials might not yield high quality evidence. They're poorly conducted, uh, they're unblinded, and have lost lots of patients to follow up. Small sample sizes, wide confidence intervals, and they're imprecise. They disagree with one another. One trial says, oh, it works. Another trial says it doesn't work, and we don't understand why there's a difference. That will lower our certainty. Indirectness. I practice as a specialist in internal medicine, hospital-based. I try to use randomized trials to guide my practice. Increasingly, I have patients over the age of 90 who... None where randomized trials did not enroll such patients. I'm not so sure that my uh, the results of the trials apply to my 95 year old, and that creates what grade calls indirectness. And finally, publication bias. So we have a number of reasons that rate down the might rate down the quality evidence of a body of randomized trials. On the other hand, there are. Some situations, not a huge amount, but some situations where observational studies yield high-quality evidence. Under what circumstances? When you have big effects of treatment that happen quickly. So, if you think of people who get their hip replaced, they were on an inevitable downhill trajectory. A few weeks after their hip replacement, 95% of them are now back on the golf course. Huge differences Uh, uh, reversing a downhill trajectory. Somebody gets anaphylactic shock, you give them epinephrine. Thank God they can breathe again. Um, People who are about to die of renal failure on the course, you give them dialysis. Clearly they live longer than they otherwise would. In other words, there are these situations with big effects, particularly when they act quickly, where observational studies can yield high quality evidence.
0: And you do... A lot of systematic reviews and a lot of guidelines and you use GRADE for both of these things. Is it different the way that you use it between those two settings?
3: Um, The difference is in when you're rating your quality of it, the evidence, uh, the context in which you are rating it. And recently, um, relatively recently for GRADE, we've had what we believe is a key insight is the necessity to specify what it is you're rating your certainty in. So you can simply rate your certainty that there is a treatment effect. Or is there a treatment effect that most people might consider important? And those are what we might use in the context of systematic reviews. On the context of guidelines, we say, how confident are we that the benefits outweigh the risks or harms uh, or burdens? So when we consider our certainty of evidence, we're considering the certainty about the trade-offs that are specific to the guideline question that we are addressing.
0: And what... What do you notice? I mean, you must read a lot as well as um, writing these things yourself. What do you encounter um, in terms of the use of grade? What do people commonly misunderstand or what tips would you have for people who are trying to use it well?
3: Well, um, if they are confused about what it is they are rating their certainty in, and they haven't actually addressed that explicitly, that is one of the ways uh, that people... Uh, can uh, certain uh, can uh, go wrong in the context of systematic reviews. In the context of guidelines, experts love to make strong recommendations and they may make inappropriate strong recommendations when the evidence is low quality. Uh, even though we're really uncertain, they still want to tell people what to do. Um, another thing is... in the the guideline context, GRADE emphasizes that the evidence, as does EBM, the evidence does not tell us of itself what to do because there are inevitably trade-offs between desirable and undesirable consequences, and you have to weigh them, then the values and preferences of what we say, how important do you think the benefits are versus how important do you think the harms are, guideline panels have to make that trade-off and they need to be explicit about how much they value the benefits how much they value the harms and they still often are not
0: Hmm. and is that something that's important to do up front or is that something that people tend to do iteratively as they go along
3: Um, i would say um, it is needs to be done iteratively So, for example, you would say uh, everybody would agree that mortality is critical. And then as you go along, you find that the treatment doesn't have any effect on mortality, but it may affect stroke or myocardial infarction. Mortality then becomes irrelevant, and you need to focus on, relative to the downsides, how important you think stroke or myocardial infarction are. So um, definitely, you may be worried about side effect X, but it turns out side effect X almost never happens. It might have been important when you were thinking about it at the beginning. does not become important at the end. So it's an iterative process mm. deciding on the... Uh, value, your value and preferences, what importance you give to the desirable and undesirable consequences.
0: And what about, I mean, I guess when you try and simplify life or how how you should manage your life, inevitably you're trying to take something complex and make it simple or reduce it in some way. And one particular um, challenge I think is around complex interventions or interventions that that are more complicated than giving drug a or drug b to somebody how can grade help there
3: well um, so in a number of ways grade emphasizes explicitness and transparency so one of the things that ebm has noted is sometimes these complex interventions don't describe very well what it is exactly that they're doing, or what variability there is in the complex intervention. And um, that makes it very difficult to apply. So for instance, I talked about one of the great domains of indirectness, and I, the example I used is um, in my 95-year-old patient, maybe the randomized trials in younger patients only provide indirect evidence. You can always also have indirectness of the interventions. So, complex interventions may be delivered differently in different contexts. A randomized trial of complex intervention A may be different than a randomized trial of complex intervention B. They may still go under the same name of a rehabilitation program. But some rehabilitation programs may just have exercise and some may have exercise but cognitive behavioral therapy and some may do group sessions and all sorts of things. And so one of the things that would grade that would emphasize is be clear on what it is you are, if you're in a guideline panel, what it is you're recommending. And if you're recommending a rehabilitation program with all the bells and whistles and somebody else has just tested a minimalist rehabilitation program, then you have to take that into your account under the grade domain of indirectness. So that would be one way. The second thing is, or a second thing is, still what are the outcomes that are important? What is important to patients in this context and what are the values and preferences? Um, and what is the burden what is how do people perceive the burden of whatever the complex intervention so there's a whole host of fundamentals of grade thinking that can be extremely helpful in looking at complex interventions
0: and where do you see Where do you see grade going from here it 's obviously evolved um as experience has grown using it where 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 do you think the next challenge is and well there
3: are Um, so two major themes of grade number one extending its application and working out how we're going to apply it to prognosis and diagnosis which was outside of the scope of what we started with we then realized it would be it actually works well so let's develop guidance so that's one theme. the other is what you might call fine tuning we are thinking of uh, it's been around for a while if you a a car metaphor um, occurs to me you thought you had the car when you had the model t however we keep refining and (laughs) refining and refining and our cars and now they're going to be electronic so meanwhile we're we're also refining the great approach
0: so you might not have to rate it at all you could have a a driverless grade?
3: Well, <laughs> this is, uh, it's an interesting point that some people have described mechanical approaches to grade. They are hopeless and inevitably, <laughs> in our view, misleading. As it turns out, it's always going to require judgment. And the great merit of grade is not that it doesn't require judgment, not that the decisions are always the same but rather the explicitness and transparency of the criteria that people can then discuss and uh, eventually argue about and hopefully come to some common understanding.
1: Well, it's nice to hear someone explain something quite succinctly, and... It seems like grade is actually really quite straightforward. You know, you look at these evidence ratings and, and they seem like they're complex, but the the concept is, is pretty clear. And, and listening to that, I was thinking back to, you know, the few times I've sat in on manuscript meeting or, you know, the discussions even we have in the journal all the time. And what he's picked up there are all the things that we talk about, but they're just put into... Uh, as you said at the beginning, before this, a framework to kind of help you think through it and and sort of systematise your, your thinking around it?
0: Yeah, I think the thing that really stuck out for me was just Gordon really stressing that you need to be incredibly clear about what um, you, particularly when you're a guideline committee or you're the person sort of arbitrating the judgement, um, is what your perspective is, what it is that you actually value. So yeah. if we went back to that justification that um, Anthony was expressing to us in the, in the first uh, interview around um, the rollout in phase two, and when they were looking at whether occupation or age might be the best way to shape the way that the rollout was happening, they went for age And it was apparent that that was primarily because what they valued as a committee was getting the vaccine out fast to as many people as possible. And there were some pragmatic limitations around how the program's even being delivered Mm. because it's coming through primary care.
1: Primary care records don't
0: necessarily know what your job is. (laughs) So there are these kind of practical issues and what you value and just making that clear. And I think sometimes that can... Diffuse where it can seem like people have recommended different things in different countries or different areas, there may be legitimate reasons for that um, that have nothing to do necessarily with the evidence.
1: Mm. I was thinking back to an interview we did with Reid Timnick, who uh, does our rapid uh, recommendation on um, WHO treatment guidelines. And he said something there about, oh, I'm in Canada, we have never given this drug whichever drug that was at the time.
0: Yes, I think one of the things that the that that committee um, valued was the onus on a drug needing to show benefit before they were going to make a recommendation to prescribe it rather than thinking um, well what we value would be trying it even if we're totally unsure, which I guess is another legitimate position that you you could adopt if if you wanted to. But it's good just but to be clear. But it did clear. make me it is good to be clear. But it did make me wonder whether whether for Anthony's team working without a framework, at at the moment, at least it feels to me that in a way the recommendations in some ways to give the vaccine are quite strong. Like mm. it's clear that that anyone would do it. It doesn't seem too controversial but I wonder whether when you get into situations where the balance of benefit and harm might be much closer or the practical issues are much more difficult or you know cost effectiveness is totally out of the equation at the moment but what about with boosters maybe it's this year maybe it's not this year but when cost effectiveness comes back in as, as an element that you might want to consider as well whether there's just a need going to be a need to make much more clear why you reached that decision to kind of show you're working
1: yeah and you asked him that question about you know transparency as being a way of um reducing vaccine hesitancy getting you know greater trust in it and i kind of that's almost the un, unspoken question you had within that about the those you know where they're coming from their values and their their preferences because those are the bits that that create trust it's not necessarily the sort of nerdy detail of the maths it's it's what do you want to achieve is that the same as you know what people out there in in the world want
0: we should probably wrap up and we could say it as um uh so to bring these two interviews together duncan you wanted to know when you were going to get your vaccine and you kind of got your answer and now you can understand in a grade framework even if grade wasn't <laughs> used <laughs> why you're getting it when you're getting it
1: well on that note i'm going to go and block out A couple of weeks in my calendar to make sure that uh, I'm free to go and get the vaccination. Um, We'll be back again with some more talk evidence in about a month's time. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that. Before next week, as Helen said, it's great to hear from you. So if you've got anything, um, any questions about vaccines or about anything else, in the world of of evidence do let us know and we can try and answer that for you so uh until then it's goodbye from me
0: and goodbye from me
1: take care out there